Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. How's everybody doing today? Three people right here. One, two, and three. So good to see you. Uh, uh, happy Halloween, everybody. Uh, I would like to impart some parental wisdom upon you uh, of something that I uh, do with my children on Halloween. I believe that Halloween is a phenomenal opportunity to introduce my children to the concept of taxes. Yeah. Paying taxes. And uh, well, you know, basically I go in and take all the candy I want and leave what I want them to have. And uh, that's kind of how that works. Uh, anyway, not trying to make a political statement per se, but it's a great opportunity to raise your kids in the things of the world. Also, I have really good news today. Um, the Chiefs are not going to lose today. It's not. And for those that don't know, it's because they're not playing today. They're playing tomorrow. And uh, so anyway, I'm glad that you guys are here. Not funny. I know it's not funny. It's, it's too soon. It's too soon. You know, it's not too soon for them to pull their heads out of their ears. And uh, anyway. Coach Reed, if you're watching, just give me a call. I'll solve everything. Anyway, it's so good to see you guys today. I'm glad that you're here. We are in week two of our series, Who's the Minister Here? Let me tell you the reason why uh, I'm so excited about this series because I, I, Jesus talked about when he was on earth, um, this idea that he, he, he wanted to give us an abundant life. He, he contrasted himself with the devil and said, the devil's gonna come to steal, kill and destroy, but I've come that you can have life and have it more abundantly. And part of, part of the way that we experience that abundant life begins with trusting in Christ for salvation and, um, and experiencing his forgiveness, forgiving us of all of our junk. But, the, but there's a part of it that oftentimes so many Christians don't know, or, or maybe they do know, but, but they're allowing things to get in the way from, from us stepping into this idea of the abundant life that he wants for us. And, and, and the best way that I've ever heard categorized that, to try to put handles on what is this abundant life? I heard somebody say this way one time that the abundant life is a life that we live where, where with our lives, we live in such a way where God gets all the glory, the world gets all the good, and we get all the joy. And when we begin to understand that Jesus did not just, this is what last week was all about. Jesus didn't just, just set us free from all of the stuff in our past so we can just sit back and relax. That he set us free so that we can be unleashed to go tell other people about the hope that's in Jesus. When we begin to live that way as a minister, then we begin to experience these new heights and these new places in our relationship with Jesus. And so that's what this series is really all about. And last week, the, the, the goal was, was to kind of try to establish a foundation to get us all to the, the, the kind of the theological framework of understanding that every single one of us is a minister. All right, say, say this with me. I am a minister. Right, that's what I'm trying to help you understand that God has called us, God has positioned us to be a minister. Over the next several weeks, we're gonna be really unpacking some of the different elements of what this means and what it looks like and the things that God does in us and through us and, and, and some different things. So you're gonna to have to come back as we work through this. But today, what I wanna do, since it's Halloween, I thought I would take a little bit of time talking about one of the most mysterious parts of being a follower of Jesus. It only seems appropriate since we're, you know, Halloween, spooky, mysterious, all that kind of stuff. And so what I wanna do today is I wanna, I wanna talk about a subject matter that causes a lot of people to feel super awkward, 
Um, honestly, in kind of the tradition of, of church and Christianity that I grew up in, um, this was something that was really super awkward. And so it was kind of one of those things that we didn't talk about it a whole lot. Um, and, and, and yet there are others who, um, this, it's not that it's awkward, that it almost creates this unhealthy infatuation with, with this thing that we're going to talk about today. And it, and it causes people to, actually, it causes some people who have this unhealthy infatuation to begin to almost kind of idolize this thing, um, to, uh, uh, and lift it to a place that's higher than what God really intended it to be. And so the title of my message today is touched by God touched by God. In order for us to understand and have the confidence of of what it means for us as followers of Jesus to be a minister, then we have to understand this concept. We have to understand what we're talking about today. And what I'm going to be unpacking today is we're going to be talking about what it means to be anointed by God. All right, now that, that, that word you know, immediately stirs up some thoughts and some feelings, but, but ultimately we can't, the Bible doesn't give us the option of, of, of running away from or becoming overly infatuated with this idea of being anointed by God. In fact, it's critical for us to understand that if, if Jesus has set us apart, if he has called us as his followers to be ministers, then it's critical for us to understand what it means to be anointed by God. All right. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to kind of talk about the literal sense. And I want to talk about some of the figurative stuff about what's going on figuratively. And then I'm going to unpack what it all means for us. So I'm kind of giving you the, 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 the outline before we jump into the message today. And, and, and so let's dive in. Literally anointing is, um, well, it's not really mystical really at all, really. It, it's just, it literally just means to rub or smear with oil. All right. And, and so, so there's nothing, you know, weird or, or, you know, I guess maybe if you walked around and saw your neighbor, you know, just rubbing everything with oil, that would be weird. Right. Like, um, you know, don't do that. But what we understand is in order for us to understand why this concept is so important to God, we have to understand a little bit about ancient Eastern culture and specifically biblical culture. Because even though the, the, the literal word of anointing is not really hard to understand, the significance of the symbolism is really where all of the weight of it is. In ancient Eastern culture, when, when someone or something was anointed with oil, really it didn't really even matter what your religious affiliation was. When someone or something was anointed for oil, with oil, then there was, that came with it this understanding that this thing or this person um, can now be used for divine purposes. All right, that, that with it, the, the process of being anointed um, allowed some sort of uh, uh, extra positioning or extra significance that now this person or this thing can now be used for God's purposes. In a biblical standpoint, what we're gonna see is, is that when things or people were anointed with oil, then what it was, it was, it was God from heaven kind of indicating that there's something special, there's something different about this person, there's something different about this thing. And now, because it's been anointed, this person or this thing can now be used to accomplish God's will. When we look through the Old Testament, we find a number of instances when stuff or people gets anointed. We find several of the instances in the book of Exodus as God was establishing his framework for how the Jewish people were going to do their systems of worship and identifying leadership, so on and so forth. But in Exodus chapter 29, we see that God um, gives the instructions for the altar to be anointed with oil. 
Once it was built, it was anointed. And once it was anointed, it could now be used to offer the sacrifices on to be burned up for God's purposes as a part of worship to God. Also in Exodus chapter 29, we find that Aaron, Moses' brother, was anointed to be the priest of Israel, to be the high priest. And so, so when, when, when the altar was anointed, the thing was ready to be used by God. But now Aaron is anointed and now he as a person is ready to be used by God. We also see situations in the Old Testament when, when people are anointed that, that they're given some kind of extra ability. For instance, in Exodus chapter 31, we find about this dude named Bezalel. Bezalel was a, a craftsman, but he was anointed by God with, with the extra stuff he needed, the extra understanding and the extra ability to be able to craft all of the tools and the utensils that were to be used in the tabernacle for the purpose of worship. And then over and over and over again, perhaps the most common form of anointing that we see are, is when kings in the Old Testament are anointed to be king. The most famous of which is David, and David is anointed as king. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to double click on the, the passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when David is anointed as king because in this one little package, God gives us kind of the glimpse of the understanding of everything that he's doing with this concept, this process of anointing. And this is what it says, 1 Samuel 16. It says, then Samuel, he was the prophet of God. He takes the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. In this one verse, we see the, the context of what it is that God does. God sends Samuel, the, the, the man of God, he sends Samuel to David's family's house. And there's this whole incredible story. And at the end of the story culminates with Samuel anointing David in the midst of his brothers, in the midst of his dad, in the midst of all the servants and of the family. He anoints David as the king, the next king of Israel. And what he does is, is that through this process, he is being chosen, he's being set apart for something that is unique, something that is special that God has called him to do. The second thing that we notice in this verse is not only in the anointing is David set apart from everybody else, but he is also given something extra. It says that the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, that, that the spirit of God from heaven comes and, and comes on to David and David now has an ability to be able to do things at a level that, that he previously wasn't able to. Now, there was a lot of things that David had learned to do as a shepherd boy, he had learned to do as a musician. He had learned to do in fighting off and protecting his sheep. But what God does is he sends his spirit and he like supercharges some of these things to give him a little something extra. In my studies this week, I came across this quote by a man named John McKinley. And I love this quote because I believe that it sums up pretty succinctly what God does through the process of anointing. And this is what the quote says. It says, God's pattern with Moses and the elders of Israel, Joshua, the judges, and Saul, and Saul is representative of really any of the kings of Israel, was to empower them by the spirit of God for leadership and military prowess. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that God empowered people in the Old Testament for, but certainly there is a trend that when somebody had been selected, when someone had been chosen by God to be a significant leader for his people, they were anointed and they were empowered with extra ability for leadership and military prowess. 
And if we were to go back and do a case study on this idea of anointing, I believe that what you would find is that over and over and over again, this idea that when someone or something is anointed, they're set apart and then they are empowered to be able to do something. When Jesus comes along, things begin to change. Just like we talked about last week, if you were here last week in the Old Testament, God identified these select group of people born to a select family to be the priests, the ministers on behalf of God to the nation of Israel. In the same kind of way, in the, all throughout the Old Testament, God would identify select groups of people. They would be anointed by somebody who was a spokesperson for God. And once they were anointed, they were set apart and they were given some extra, extra special power, um, supernatural ability to be able to lead at a level and, and do things at a level beyond what they could do on their own. And they were then used by God, this select group of people, to do these super special select things. When Jesus comes along, just like we talked about last week, things begin to change. We begin to learn some things about the process of anointing. And the most important thing that we learn when Jesus comes along, and I haven't recorded all of the verses here for you, but there are verses in Luke, there are verses in Acts that speak to that Jesus is the anointed one of heaven. Basically what that means is, is that, that there are other people who have been anointed, but, but then there's like the anointed one of heaven. And you guys watch football, it's super annoying because you have people that when they, when they, uh, you know, they do their uh, intro, you know, I'm so-and-so and they tell the school that they went to. And for whatever reason, people from Ohio state just think they're so arrogant and they have to say the Ohio state university. Amen. You know what I mean? And they're in the big 10 and nobody cares about them. Nobody's figured that out. Oh, 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 oh. I'm gonna start a fight right now. Right now. But what it means when it says that Jesus is the anointed one, here's what it means. It means that Jesus as the son of the living God has all of the embodiment of the power of God dwelling within him, but it is wrapped in human flesh. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that Jesus now has the authority to choose whom he wants to anoint and whom he doesn't. So we learn that Jesus is the anointed. The second thing that we learn after Jesus is, and this one is really not much of a surprise, is we learn that Jesus' apostles, the, the early church leaders in Jesus' day, his disciples that followed him and then were sent out to go take the good news all across the world, we learn that they were also anointed. Paul tells us about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 121 when it says, now he, Jesus, who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God. This is Paul basically saying, listen, me and the rest of the apostles, we have been anointed by God. And that's not really a surprise to anybody, right? It's certainly consistent with how God did things in the Old Testament, select group of people for a select thing. God anoints them and sets them apart and empowers them to go do something very, very special. Okay, that's what the apostles were doing. But things begin to change when we begin to read John's writings, and John records for us in one of his writings in 1 John chapter 2, as John writes this letter with, with, with the affection that a father would write to his children. And he's trying to help them understand a whole host of things, one of which being understanding what it means 
to be a child of God, what it means to be connected and have relationship with God. And John tells us in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Now, he's not literally saying that you're geniuses. Okay, in context, he's talking about the ability to be able to discern what is true from what is error, what is right and from what is wrong. True teaching of God from false teaching of God. But what underpins this entire idea in context of what John is talking about is this revelational idea and concept. It would have been, it, it would have blown the, the, the minds of the people who were first reading this that now no longer does God choose a select group of people for a very select special thing and he anoints them to go do that thing. No, 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 no. John reveals to us the heart of God that by faith in Christ, all people who belong to Jesus have been anointed. It's important. So, so if this is true, if all of us have been anointed, then it's critical that we begin to understand what it means. And on the surface, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal because perhaps you missed the moment when, when God came and rubbed some oil on you and said, I anoint thee and dub thee, you know, you from where you're from to go do this important thing. Perhaps you missed that. But what happens is, is as we dive into God's word and unpack what it means for a follower of Jesus to be anointed by God, we begin to peel back these layers that begin to give us encouragement and to give us hope. Because here's the reality. If you left last week thinking, I'm the minister here, I'm the minister here. You're like, man, let's go. Let's storm the gates of hell with a water pistol. And then you walked out the front door and you got in your car and you're like, how do I do that though? What is that? God, I must have misheard something because you don't know, you don't know who I am and what I'm not capable of doing. And this idea of understanding what it means to be anointed will give us some clarity about how it is that God has always been able to use normal, common, uneducated, untrained, unsignificant, uninspiring, everyday, ordinary people to continue and carry on the most significant movement that the world has ever known, which is the movement of Jesus. And so I wanna unpack this for you today. And as we do, I wanna frame this in the idea of three truths that you need to know. Three truths that, that when you begin to see this, it will allow you to be able to walk into this reality that God calls you to be a minister. And it will, it will encourage you that God hasn't done this and said basically, good luck. Have fun figuring that out. It's not like being a parent where God goes, here you go. Have fun. And then he gives you another one and you're like, this isn't anything like the first one. I know. <laughs> it's not like that. God wants you to know he's not left you on an island to figure this thing out on your own. And he's not left you alone to try to figure out what it means to do this and how to do this. So I wanna give you three truths today that I believe will help shape your understanding of what it means to be anointed. Followers of Jesus have been anointed by God. And what this means is, is that you are marked. Say that with me. You are marked. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you are marked. Now let them know you're not referring to something in their teeth or anything like that. Remember the anointing means to literally rub oil on something and it would, it would leave a mark 
that, that would then have to go and be washed or cleansed in order for the mark to go away. And, and, and in the same way, when you become a follower of Jesus, when you, when you trust in Christ, you're marked by the Holy Spirit. All right, who is the Holy Spirit? This is a big teaching for another day if this is new to you. Um, the Holy Spirit is, God tells us that he's, he's three parts of one being, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all equal, all submitting one to another in this, not three different entities, but three manifestations or representations or three parts to one being that is God. We refer to him as the triune God. Oftentimes it's referred to as the Trinity. And so what the Bible teaches us is that at the moment that someone trusts in Jesus for salvation, the moment they go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, the moment that they go, God, I am jacked up and busted and messed up and I've got guilt and shame and all of this condemnation and the weight of all of my mistakes and failures. And we look on Jesus who died on the cross for us and he rose from the grave to forgive us of our sins and we place our faith in him. He gives us a new life, a new hope, a new trajectory and a new beginning. At that moment, we become marked. And I wanna help you see what that means. Ephesians chapter one, verse 13. It says, in him, you also trusted. All right, he's talking about Jesus. You trusted in Jesus after you heard the word of truth, the truth that Jesus loves you, that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus for you even when you were still a sinner. And the gospel, which means the good news, that your salvation, um, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does this mean? It means that when you believed in this incredible news that you were loved by God, forgiven by God, received by God to be a child of his, set free towards a new trajectory, that the Holy Spirit sealed that moment. If you go back and look at your birth certificate, what you'll find is that on your birth certificate, whatever state you were born in, your birth certificate has been physically altered. The structural integrity of the paper was altered by a stamp, a seal that was embossed into the paper. And basically what that is, it's somebody certifying that you were born at a certain date, at a certain time, at a certain height, a certain weight to a certain group of people in a certain state. And it is validating that, that this paper without the seal means nothing. What the Holy Spirit does at the moment of your salvation is he seals your salvation. It guarantees that, that in the same way there was nothing you could do to earn your way into heaven, there's nothing you can do to lose your way out of it. Okay, So the Holy Spirit serves as a seal of our salvation. So our spiritual lives are marked by the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us this. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, this is also mind-blowing and significant to the people who would have heard this because the Jews who would have heard this would have known that in ancient days, the Spirit of God was in the tabernacle or in the temple and it was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And in back in olden days, when it was still a tabernacle, just a tent, and Israel was a nomadic people before they settled in Jerusalem and built a temple, they would, they, would, they would pack up the tent and they would move the tent and they had special ways that they were to move the Ark of the Covenant and they would move the Ark of the Covenant, they would set the tent up, they would put the Ark of the Covenant in the tent and then the presence of God would fall back on that place again. When Jesus came along, he said, listen, no longer is my presence defined by a building or a structure. My presence now is defined by the people who call upon me because my spirit comes and takes residence inside of you at the moment of your salvation. 
It's no longer just me, myself, and I. It's me, myself, and I, and the spirit of God living in me. And so sometimes perhaps you hear somebody say, I feel led by the spirit too, or, or I feel like the spirit of God has spoken to me. What is that? It's not just bad pizza. It's not just intuition, okay? It's, it's the whispering voice of God. God almost never yells. In my experience, God almost never yells at me. Sometimes I wish he would so that I could hear him because your boy is a little thick headed sometimes. But God doesn't, yes. But God, through his spirit, he will, he will often whisper to us. And what this is, is it's the, it's the spirit of God that has been marked. The spirit of God has come on us the same way that they were anointed with oil on their physical body. The spirit of God comes inside of us. We are marked by the spirit of God. And it's his still small voice that is whispering, trying to navigate the ship of your life in the direction that will lead you into a closer relationship with Jesus. So we have, what we have to understand is this idea of being touched by God. The idea of being anointed means that we have been marked. Here's the second truth that we have to understand, that we've not only been marked by being anointed by God, but we are also set apart. We're set apart. What does this mean? Well, in the same way that every priest and king in the Old Testament was set apart for something specific, we begin to realize that God has also set us apart for something. And that there is a process whereby, in the same way that there was a process to being anointed, that there's a process whereby we were able to recognize and communicate that we have been set apart. Ultimately, what all of us have been set apart for is what we talked about last week, to be a minister of Jesus to the world. But there's a process, this idea of being set apart. Romans 13 begins to tell us a little bit about it. He says this, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. He's talking about before Christ, these are things that could have identified and defined the way that you live. But now that you are a Christian, now that you've been set free and forgiven from your sin, now that you've been marked by the spirit of God dwelling inside of you, verse 14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. He said, listen, there's, this, there, there's a process now where, where you have to put on. It's not on you already. Yes, you are anointed by God. You have been marked by God. The spirit of God has taken residence inside of you and his voice will speak to you and lead you to a closer relationship with Jesus. But day after day, moment by moment, it's a decision to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to put on his desires for my life and not just my own, to put on the things that would lead me to closer to him and in so doing, putting off the things that led me down to the dark road of sin and destruction in the first place. There's a process of obedience that comes with this, of being set apart. Where does it begin? Where does the process of obedience start? We learn about it when we allow scripture to interpret scripture, what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.27 says this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does this mean? This means that the moment that, that you trust in Christ for salvation, the Bible begins to paint this idea that from this point forward, there is a journey of obedience in front of you. And at the moment that you trust in Christ, that is a personal, private decision. It changes your life. 
If you're here today and you've not made that decision to trust in Christ, or, or maybe you have, but maybe you're like, I don't know if I'm good with Jesus or not. I'm not sure exactly where I stand. Listen, if you have made the decision to trust in Christ, then scripture says that you have been born again. You have a seal of your spiritual birth and you can't be unbirthed. You're spiritually alive. But the process of drawing closer to Jesus is a process of obedience. It's a process of recognizing that you've been set apart not to walk in the lewdness and the drunkenness and the revelry of all of the things of your past, but you've been set apart to walk in a different direction. And that process of obedience begins with baptism. What Jesus wants you to understand is that baptism is the moment that you put on Christ and you publicly declare to the faith family that you're around when you get baptized in and and the rest of the world, I belong to Jesus. I used to do my own thing. I used to live the way that I wanted to, but now I belong to Jesus. My life is hidden with him and I am going to, to the best of my ability, make decisions that align myself with him and his desires for my life. Through the process of baptism, God wants you to understand that the decision to trust in Christ for salvation was private and it was personal, but God never intended for it to remain private. He always wanted for it to become public. And so if you're here and you've not been baptized yet, you've not taken that, what we call, we refer to as the first step of obedience, of declaring publicly that I belong to Jesus through the process of putting on Christ, then I wanna invite you to do that. We'd love to talk to you about that. You can talk to anyone at the welcome tent. You can go online and fill out something out and our team will contact you. We wanna help you take that step. And so what God wants us to understand is that when we are in Christ, we have been anointed. And that when we're anointed, it means that we're marked and we're set apart. But the last part is the most encouraging because the last part is where things get really helpful and get really practical. Because the third truth that we have to understand is, is that we are and you are empowered by God to do what you've been set apart to do. After Jesus's resurrection, He met many of his followers. He gave them all kinds of instructions. We're gonna find some of those in Acts. Matter of fact, if you have your Bible, I know we've been kind of all over the place a little bit today. I want everybody to turn to Acts chapter one, and then we're gonna jump into Acts chapter two in just a second. I want you to see what happens when this, this idea of anointing happens for the first time in the New Testament, this idea that people are being empowered by God to do something specific. Perhaps the most important thing that Jesus said after his resurrection, before he went back to heaven, is found in Acts chapter one, verse eight. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He said, listen, here's your job. You are set apart now to go be a minister, be my witness to everybody everywhere about what I have, what I have done. And he tells them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, what does that mean and what does that look like? Well, we go to Acts chapter two and we begin to find that out. Acts chapter two, verse one says this, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one set upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, this is the moment that power came upon them and the Holy Spirit. And this is a moment that has caused a lot of confusion in the church today. 
All right, so here's the deal. We're not gonna go around it. We're gonna go through it. Some of you are gonna leave here feeling, that's my pastor, that's right, you tell him. And some of y'all are gonna leave here going, I can't believe him, he missed it. So let's have some fun today. What does this mean? In order for us to understand what's happening here, we have to understand what Pentecost is. Pentecost was one of Israel's major religious celebrations. There was three significant celebrations where all of the Jews would come to Jerusalem to take part in something. Pentecost gets its name because it was 50 days after the Sabbath Passover. So Pentecost, 50 days, 50 days after. But it's also referred to some other names that will give us a little bit of a clue of what Pentecost is really all about. There's three other names that Pentecost was referred to. In the Old Testament, it was referred to as the Feast of Weeks. Maybe that doesn't help you. I don't know. Um, another phrase that is used to define it is the Day of First Fruits. That's getting a little bit more helpful. But the most helpful name that was that this celebration and this ritualistic uh, sacrifice time was referred to as was the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And so this was a time where all Jews would, would take the first fruit. It was harvest time. They would take the first fruits of their wheat harvest. There was an agrarian culture and wheat was the, one of the most significant crops in their area to their livelihood. And so what they would do is they would, they would begin the process of harvesting the wheat. And then from wherever they were, they would come to Jerusalem, make the trek to Jerusalem and bring the first portion of their wheat harvest to the temple. Why would they do this? They would do this in part because it was what God had instructed and God had commanded them to do, but God had commanded them to do this, not so there could be this uh, uh, um, uh, equational uh, transactional thing that God, when I do this, then you will do that. No, the reason why God led them to do this was so that they would understand and remember that it was never their job to create. It was always their job to follow God. And because God is the one who brings the harvest, it was an act of remembrance of saying, God, it was not the work of my hands that brought this harvest. It was your favor and your goodness and your blessing and your working through the scientific process of how all this works that has led me to be able to enjoy this. Somebody needs to hear that today because you've been wrestling with what are you supposed to do with your time, your talent and your treasure and the principle of bringing our first to God is not just about so that God can bless it and we can get more. That's not what it's about. It's so that you and I can remember that it was never our job to be God and that our job is to trust and follow him. And so Pentecost was a time that all of these Jews from all over the world, all over the known world, would have come to Israel to participate in this sacrifice. Why is it important? Well, remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, go be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the nations. In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, he says, go to all the world and make disciples. On the day of Pentecost, God, this is not accidental. This is not coincidental. On the day of Pentecost, when all of these people from all over the world would have been in Jerusalem, God sends the power of the spirit of God to be able to minister to all of the people because all of the people and all of the nations had come to them. The next verse, verse five, it says, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And so there's all these people in Israel, each one speaking their own language, their own dialects, their own things that are going on. And so God sends the power of the spirit of God upon them, these divided tongues, tongues of fire and speaking in tongues so that they could have the power that was required to do the ministry that they had been set apart and called apart to do. Does that make sense? So what is speaking in tongues? Well, 
here's where I'm going to slap the hornet's nest. Because my Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters want to take things and run it way over here and go, I'm in this camp over here. And my Baptists and, and other more conservative theologically types want to come over here and go, this is my camp over here and this is what it says. Can I just tell you, it is almost never fruitful for you to align yourself with a theological camp. Let me tell you the reason why. Because when you begin to align yourself with a theological camp, then what happens is, is you begin to read the word of God through the lens of the theological camp that you sit in. And instead of allowing the word of God to speak for itself, you begin to infer or um, uh, do this, what's called eisegesis, which is to read into the text something that you want to read into it based on the framework of whatever theological camp that you find yourself in. Listen, this is never fruitful, but what is always fruitful is to stand firmly anchored to the word of God and go, when God's word is clear, I'm going to be clear in what I know and what I believe it says. And when God's word is unclear, I'm not gonna act like a spiritual, spiritual jack wagon acting like I've got all the answers. What is speaking in tongues? The very next verse defines what this is. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused, right? So all these people are there, the sound happened, everyone's like, what the heck is happening here? Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, for all the people saying amen, let me tell you that there are some places in scripture where there is, God has not given us a ton of clarity like he has here about what this idea of speaking in tongues is, what the idea of a, a prayer language or any of that kind. There are places in scripture, for me, I can sort it out and work it out to a place that I'm comfortable, but none of them are quite as clear as what God does here in Acts chapter two. So, what is speaking in tongues? In this situation, God has made it unflinchingly clear this is not a spiritual language. In this passage, God has made it unflinchingly clear this is not um, spontaneous utterances or gibberish. In this case, in this passage of scripture, God has made it unflinchingly clear that speaking in tongues is the ability to speak in a language that you were not trained to speak in. Like me going to Tanzania without any training in Swahili and just being able to Swahili everybody, okay? When I moved from Arkansas to California, it was a foreign tongue and nobody understood what I was saying. They for sure couldn't understand my name. My entire first, my sophomore year of high school, nobody called me Jernigan, everybody called me Arkansas because they couldn't understand what I was saying. So in this section, in this passage, God makes it clear what this is. But to my charismatic brothers and sisters, I will cede to you that there are some passages that are not quite as clear. And it's not something for me that I'm willing to separate over. So if it's not a dividing point for you, it's not a dividing point for me. A whole nother message for a whole nother day to unpack a whole lot more than that that I don't have time for, but suffice it to say, God talked about it. I'm talking about it. We're gonna go through it, not go around it. Let's go back to the, to the rest of the message. What's important here is that we understand that we not get caught up and bogged down in the semantics of what does speaking in tongues mean for the purpose of what God wants us to see today. And I believe the bigger purpose that God wants all believers to see 
is that God had set apart his apostles, his disciples. They were anointed to go make disciples, to be his witness. God did not leave them on an island. He empowered them with some extra stuff that was necessary for them to do what God had called them to do. And what God has done for them, he's done for you. Ephesians chapter one says this, blessed be the God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know what this means? It means that all of the spiritual blessings that God has stored up in heaven, when Jesus came and made it possible that man no longer has to interact through an intermediary that is another man, that that humanity has the access to God through Jesus and him alone, God removed the stuff that separated it and he has now anointed every follower of Jesus to go be his minister. And he is bestowing all of the spiritual gifts that he has up in the heavenlies. He has poured it out upon his church. I don't have time to go through and unpack all of this, but there's several places in scripture where God talks about these things called spiritual gifts. These are things that the spirit of God gives supernatural ability, supernatural empowerment for the purpose of all of it. I was gonna talk about it today, but I'm running out of time. You can go look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses four through 12, and what God talks about, the purpose of these gifts. He brings a, a diversity of gifts, meaning that different people get gifts in different ways, some wisdom, some faith, some preaching, teaching, leadership, all of these things. He gives different gifts to different people, but the purpose of the diversification of the dispensation of the gifts is so that there can be a unification of the people of Jesus under the mission of advancing the name of Jesus into all the world. That's why they exist. And so what God has done is God has made it so that all believers, all followers of Jesus, regardless of how un- or uncommon or, or, or unamazing or uninspiring or unqualified that you think you might be, God has made it so that every single person who claims the name of Jesus can understand that you have been anointed, you've been marked, you've been set apart, and you've been empowered to go be what he has called you to be as a minister. What does all of this mean? It means that when we read verses like one of our favorite verses at our church, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, that when it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, what it means is that when we say that you were created on purpose for purpose, that you're not an accident, that you have your interests and your abilities and all of your idiosyncrasies exactly the way that you do, that God carefully fashioned and carefully put all of it together. And at the moment of your salvation, he anoints you with the spirit of God. He sets you apart to go be his minister. And then he empowers you in part through the way that you're wired. And sometimes through some other stuff that he gives you that you didn't have before, that he empowers you with with the spirit of God so that you can go be the minister that God has called you to be in the place that he has called you to be that minister at. This is how the movement of Jesus has been able to continue for 2000 years. Not because there were a handful of super wicked, talented, super awesome people that were willing to put it on the line for Jesus. No, it's continued for 2000 years because there's some super ordinary people who had a supernatural encounter with the living God who changed their life, changed their story, rearranged everything about them. And then he empowered them with the spirit of God and he anointed them to go be his witness and go be his minister everywhere that they go. 
That is how the movement of Jesus has continued. And what Jesus is inviting you and me into as we continue to unpack this series is that he is inviting us into the recognition that the movement continues, not through the pastor, not through the worship pastor. The movement of Jesus doesn't continue through priests and cardinals and bishops. The movement of Jesus doesn't continue just through these people that we have qualified based on their their profession as holy people. The movement of Jesus continues through spirit-filled believers that are willing to just say, God, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but I know I'm yours. I know you changed my life. And I know there are people who are close to me, but far from you, that you are desperate to have a relationship with. And when we live with this missional mindset of recognizing I am the minister here, then we'll begin to live out and experience this incredible thing of understanding what it means to be marked, to be set apart, and to be empowered. I want to read one final verse to you and give you one final thought, and then we'll be done. I love this translation of Romans chapter 8, verse 11. It says, If the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from death, if he lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies by the presence of his spirit in you. Another way to say it is that if you believe in Jesus and have trusted in him from salvation, then the same power that was within him dwells within you. I want to connect the dots so that you can see it and I'm going to wrap it up and be done. The same power that anointed Aaron to be a priest was the same power that anointed David to be a king, was the same power that identified Jesus as the anointed one who has the power to anoint whom he now chooses. It is the same power that resurrected Christ from the grave and it is the same power that is inside of you today. It's the same power. It's the same spirit. It's the same movement that God has been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And it's not about you. It's not about me. And you go, I know it's not about me. That's why I don't want to screw it up. No, no, no. When you make it about your weaknesses and what you cannot do, we make it about us. But when we say, God, here I am, use me. You created me. You know what I am incapable of doing. You know my weaknesses. You know I don't have the words to go talk to my coworker about you. You know I don't know how to pray for other people. I can't pray for people in public. God, you don't know I don't have the whole Bible memorized. No, 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 no. It's not about you because the movement has never been about qualified, capable, impressive people. It's always been about Jesus and how his power is made perfect in our weakness. I'm trying to get you to understand in this series that you are a minister. Today, 
I'm trying to help you understand so that you will leave this place encouraged. You may not have all the clarity about what it all means yet, but that you will never again think, I'm not qualified for this. No, 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 The spirit of God who dwells in you has qualified you because you are anointed by the spirit of God. And if you are anointed, then I need you to understand that God will empower you for every single thing he sets you apart to do. There will never be a thing that God leads you to do that he will not empower you with so that you can do it. So when you leave this place today or you wake up tomorrow and hopefully the spirit of God will bring something from this message back into your heart and hopefully, most importantly, that what he brings into the focus of your heart is somebody who doesn't know him. And you begin to think, God, I can't do that. You're right. Right now in this moment, you probably can't. But when you begin to just say, but yes, Lord, you are going to be amazed at how once you get to the moment and you step up into the moment as a minister, you start saying things and connecting dots and quoting scripture that you didn't even know you had because you didn't have it. The spirit of God will empower you to go be a minister. You are a minister and you are anointed. So never again believe the lie that you are not qualified. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.